I am always uh, surprised at the extent to which the human rights community is unaware about the importance of self-care. You are listening to Padded Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. I'm your host, Anthony Oluwaji. Welcome back to another episode of Padded Cell Podcast. I am Anthony Oluwaji, the independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, Victor Madrigal Borlos, will be chatting with me this week. He will be talking about his work, how his work affects people, and how, as activists, we need to think a lot about self-care. Before we get into the conversation, however, Victor shared with me a poem that has meant a lot to him. It is one that speaks to us as individuals and the various journeys we take in life. Here it is, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the world gears, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. My name is Victor Madrigal Borlos. I am originally from Costa Rica, um, a jurist by profession. I have been working in the field of human rights for uh, most of my career. And since January of 2018, I am the United Nations independent expert on protection from violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. And congratulations. You just said that you're from Costa Rica. Congratulations on the win in Costa Rica. Well, uh, it is a wonderful time uh, for us who were born in a country that had a significantly different texture when it, came to, when it comes to uh, the rights of LGBT persons. And uh, my life experience has convinced me uh, by going through that process of, of the real possibility of change uh, within a generation, because I have mm -hmm. experienced that in my, in my own context and in my own country. So yes, it's a wonderful day, but uh, Anthony, I, I, I want to be absolutely clear. I take no credit. This has been the fight mm -hmm. of 
many, many people uh, who have been fighting for decades for this. And I'm just very, very happy to, to, yes. have, to be a witness to it. Absolutely. And, and you grew up in Costa Rica, right? I did, yes. How, how was it growing up as a gay person in Costa Rica? Well, you have to place it in context. Um, I'm 50 mm -hmm. years old, so I was born in 69, mm -hmm. uh, which means that I was born uh, in a society that uh, still maintained all of the mechanisms of stigma in place. Um, there was the idea very, very deeply rooted into society that um, same-sex uh, attraction and, and sexual orientation uh, was uh, pathological, that it was antisocial, and that it was uh, sinful. And um, growing up in a society uh, that uh, so strongly embrace uh, that those mechanisms simply sent the message that uh, uh, every um, uh, every element of the reality that uh, that I had uh, a sec my sexual orientation needed to be pushed down very deeply within me mm -hmm. And how did you deal with it? How did you deal with it? I mean, your your experience in, in Costa Rica at that time is similar to, to quite a number of people in different parts of the world, especially in Africa, where, where our sexual orientation is, sexual orientation, gender identity is viewed as some, a pathology, a, a, you know, something pathological. And we have laws criminalizing homosexuality in many parts of of, of, of the African continent. How did you deal with being in that particular situation growing up that time? Well, Anthony, what I can tell you is a friend of mine recently told me uh, something that stuck with me. Um, he said the basic uh, difficulty that we all have to deal with is that we live in societies that tell you that in order to be good, you have to essentially be honest. And then immediately after that, they condemn you to lie about who you are, right? And so this mm -hmm. dichotomy is something that uh, we all learn to, uh, to see as the reality in which we are living. Uh, in my particular case, it convinced me simply that I needed to aspire to be uh, conforming, to be straight and that I needed to work very hard to actually negate uh, the reality in my sexual orientation and my gender identity. And those were very painful processes and that eventually are doomed to fail because eventually, if you're lucky enough, uh, your true nature will just prevail. And and I'm glad it did for you. And the, the fact that you you're now the independent expert on protection from violence for sexual orientation on the on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work. And I remember I was a part of um, the uh, the activists who really pushed for for this mandate at the UN back in 2017 2016. And you you became this person in January 2018. How has your work been so far? Well, um, 
you're very right in that the creation of the mandate is the result of the uh, extraordinary work of a huge coalition of entities within civil society, and also the work of uh, a significant group of states that believe in this issue and are ready to support it. So at the outset, uh, coming into the position of independent expert is uh, is a very humbling experience because you are occupying a position that was created with uh, the blood and tears and effort of so many people and in which so many aspirations are placed. So that's one aspect. You know, it's a terribly humbling experience and, and one that, uh, you know, makes uh, me uh, speak uh, with great trepidation when I, when I am speaking through the mandate's megaphone, so to speak. The work is, as I understand it, is essentially based on two outcome areas uh, that I try to impact. The first one is I try to increase visibility of the way in which, the ways in which violence and discrimination manifest themselves in the everyday lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and and other gender diverse persons. And, and this uh, is a systemic, systematic work of gathering evidence. In some times it can be anecdotal, and in some other cases it might be data, uh, elements of research and personal experiences, and making sure that the mandate's conduit is used to actually provide them with visibility. And I think that in this first outcome area, the the mandate's work is built in the working theory that to increase the visibility of violence mm. and discrimination, there will be an increase in the manner in which people um, believe that uh, that violence and discrimination needs to be addressed and eradicated. You then have the second outcome area, which is the identification of good practice so that I can advise states on measures that they can take to address violence and discrimination. And this can be in the area of laws or public policy or access to justice, meaning it's in all of the gamut of actions that a state can take in, in, in carrying out its, its work uh, that we can identify good practice to address and uh, uh, you know, advance in the eradication of violence and discrimination. Um, mm. I think, Anthony, that uh, all of this work is built on the understanding that uh, this this work of eradication of violence and discrimination is possible, that it is possible within our lifetime to see uh, significant results, but also that it relies on uh, evidence about how uh, this violence and discrimination manifest themselves in in the everyday lives of, of people, right? You're quite right. It is possible to see to see significant results within our lifetime. In, in the African context, for instance, it's, the, the African continent has often been seen as completely backward when it comes to the rights of LGBT people. Has, how, how has 
have you interacted with African states? And uh, tell tell us a little bit about how your your experience has been. Well, I interact with states at different levels. I interact with states in the United Nations um, uh, fora, and 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 there it's usually very much of a diplomatic exchange. Uh, and by diplomatic, I don't mean insincere or I don't mean uh, superficial. I mean, it actually takes point of departure in a joint understanding that we are promoting human rights and uh, really trying to listen actively as to why it may be that certain states believe that criminalization needs to uh, remain as, as, as the norm or have certain uh, approaches to the issue that could be considered more conservative. And on this, Anthony, it's very important that you know that my point of departure is always based on my conviction that criminalization is absolutely contrary to international human rights standards. So I'm not ready to discuss whether criminalization of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity is a possibility or desirable within a given context. But I am interested in discussing and understanding why in certain contexts states believe that uh, decriminalization processes may be difficult or harmful or somewhat put in risk social uh, harmony because I think that this is where the mandate can provide a value added by means of providing comparative experiences of the very many contexts in which decriminalization has happened and basically society has thrived. So that's one realm in which I have intense exchange with African countries through their diplomats that are based in different United Nations fora. But I also uh, exchange actively with states during promotional and country visits. My second country visit was to Mozambique, a state that I know very well by having worked there for many years in different capacities, and uh, with which, of course, I have uh, uh, the particular uh, relation of uh, understanding that it's a context that has very recently decriminalized. And therefore, I was interested to uh, understand how, what processes were triggered after decriminalization. Uh, Portuguese-speaking Africa is a particular context. Uh, Angola and Mozambique recently decriminalized. I think uh, French-speaking Africa is a different context. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, criminalization has not been the norm in, in French-speaking Africa, but uh, however, there are significant difficulties when it comes to social exclusion. Uh, and then you have, of course, um, the realities of uh, Commonwealth Africa, if I can describe it like that, uh, former mm -hmm. British colonies, uh, where colonial legislation uh, received uh, anti-sodomy legislation uh, that is now considered as part of the social mores that are owned by the countries. And I'm very interested to understand how those processes have effectuated themselves. And then, of course, you have Northern Africa, the Maghreb, which is a completely different situation and in itself having 
different dynamics. In all of these cases, I, I have as many exchanges as possible, again, on the basis of promotional visits. I've been very lucky that I've been able to be in very many different countries. Uh, uh, you and I met uh, in one of my first visits promotional to the continent when I was in Botswana for uh, a yes. conference of um, Pan-Africa ILGA. Uh, but I've been, yes, I've been in, in the continent in 2018, but I've been in the continent mm. many times. And uh, I actually believe that there is enormous possibilities and uh, uh, opportunities that are uh, existing in a country that has the, the youth and the vibrancy and the um, enormous openness for um, change that actually Africa does. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen within our lifetime. Let's talk a little bit about mental health and, and the importance of well-being in uh, LGBTQ organizing. What is your take on that? I have a couple of ideas. I'm not, of course, a psychologist, uh, and I work uh, very closely with mental health professionals from whom I've learned a lot. Um, you may know, Anthony, that I used to be the Secretary General of the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims, which is basic, basically a health-based organization providing mental health uh, support for torture victims. And so I've learned a lot from mental health professionals. And, and uh, what I've learned is the enormous importance of ensuring self-care uh, in the uh, furtherance of human rights work, uh, and also always having into account as a priority the mental well-being of victims of human rights violations with whom we work, and understanding that re-traumatization is a real and permanent risk for victims of human rights violations with whom we work. So already there, in that short statement, you see the very many angles that mental health, uh, in which mental health actually intersects with human rights work, right? And I'd yes. like to elaborate on, on a few of them. Um, uh, for me, there is an ethical dimension in doing human rights work, an ethical responsibility in um, ensuring that our work always, always takes point of departure in the do-no-harm principle and that re-traumatization is a real um, a factor to be assessed when we work with victims of human rights violations. And we don't need to be mental health specialists to right. understand that the risk is there and in some cases to bring it and have it into account in the work that we do, sometimes even leading to the decision that particular work needs to stop or uh, will not be able to go forward until we are able to secure proper support for the persons with whom we're working. That's one angle. Mm -hmm. The other angle, which is sufficiently important in itself, is the fact that uh, it is very uh, often the case that human rights workers, human rights defenders, uh, activists um, do not um, um, practice self-care. And this is 
an enormous liability for many reasons. First of all, it is enormously important that people thrive. Uh, I know that it sounds almost banal to say it, but um, it is really important that people are able to seek happiness. And, uh, of course, suffering damage because of vicarious traumatization um, is, is, is enormously harmful to people in their quest for happiness um, and in their enjoyment of, of the work that they do. So I always make it a point to uh, impress on human rights workers and human rights defenders the importance of practicing self-care. Uh, there is also a utilitarian dimension on this, which is not the main one, but I will also bring it to light, which is you're not as effective doing your work when you don't practice self-care. And Absolutely. you may lose dimension also of your ability to support others or to even identify in others the actuality of damage and, and as I was mentioning before, re-traumatization. And finally, I've been hearing lately from um, certain sectors of our movement a very interesting notion that I'm, I'm very fascinated about, which is self-care not only as a survival and thriving strategy, but also as a political strategy. The idea that taking care of yourself is also a political response to a system that will do everything it can to break you down. And therefore, the importance of ensuring that self-care is present in all lines of activity and that it is impressed on those who support the work, including donors and cooperation partners and those with which we cooperate, that self-care is a need that will not be cut or um, in some way uh, eliminated, but that needs to be present. And I'm fascinated by that idea. I want to explore it. I want to understand it of self-care as a political strategy. And so these are, these are three dimensions that are important uh, and that I, I hope very much that the LGBT movement uh, will be deeply mindful of uh, uh, in the future. I'm also quite quite significantly fascinated by self-care as a political strategy. Um, I've always used it as a personal strategy. I've used it as uh, as a way to keep myself sane because if I am not happy, then I'm not going to be effective in the work that I'm doing. So uh, just you know to throw that back at you, how have you practiced self-care for yourself? Well, I've, I've been very lucky in that uh, through my work in the torture rehabilitation sector, it's been a very, I've been involved with that sector uh, in a way a lot longer than I've been with, uh, with uh, human rights uh, of LGBT people. I've been working on the torture rehabilitation sector since 20 years ago. And so I've been very fortunate to be in contact with these approaches uh, of understanding vicarious traumatization and uh, the need to actually ensure self-care. And I'm sure that this is not a secret uh, to you, Anthony. Uh, in the uh, mental health field, it is usually a professional requirement to debrief, you know, periodically 
with a mental health professional that would provide, in some cases, peer uh, support, and in some other cases, uh, debriefing uh, capacities. And so debriefing is something that I do periodically because uh, in all of the realms of my work, uh, I have always understood the actuality of uh, vicarious traumatization as a real risk. Um, I don't think it's it's logical to expect that any person being exposed to the type of cruelty and difficulties that victims of human rights violations share with us uh, would not be affected. And therefore, the briefing is an important mechanism that I use periodically. Um, I also very much uh, try to keep myself informed of um, what is the best understanding of things as simple as, as uh, work, uh, personal life balance, mm-hmm. um, ensuring uh, that uh, you know things as concrete as uh, exercise remain, you know, part of my daily routine. Uh, tools that have been developed and that may help with uh, particular people. They're helpful to me. I do a lot of uh, yoga, for example, uh, which uh, it's, I use it also a form of meditation. So for me, any I'm, I'm ready and always happy to explore any tool that can be helpful in uh, ensuring self-care. Now, uh, I need to be also very honest with you. Sometimes... I have been neglect, neglectful of uh, my own self-care, but I, I have uh, paid dearly for that. And uh, that experience has actually helped me to understand that it is a real need and uh, one that uh, should always be a priority. Absolutely. I think as, as activists, we all tend to fall into that trap where we just want to work and work and work. And we forget about uh, vicarious traumatization. We, we, we absorb quite a lot of the, of the trauma that other people are facing and it, it affects us. And we, we tend to forget that often. Well, I think there's also the notion that there's a value attached to that, right? There, there appears to me, because I've, 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 I've made that mistake, and so I want to own to it, um, you know, the idea is that uh, you go into this sort of, uh, a, a colleague of mine once described as a messianic complex, you know, going into a situation with the idea that uh, by exposing yourself to the suffering of others and uh, eliminating any boundary in the exposure to that suffering, uh, there is a mission uh, aspect to it. And I want mm-hmm. to actually contribute to dispelling that notion in a way. I think, uh, at least in my case, it was motivated by uh, reasons that I actually regard now as quite selfish. You know, It was a way for me to uh, feed into uh, the experience of others in a way that was not very productive or useful to them. And so what I try now is to respect the pain in the other as their pain, as their experience of pain and suffering, and understand that there's very little use of me uh, sharing that pain, but actually that the best form of respect that I can actually exercise 
is to understand it, to try and transmit it, to try and report on it, uh, and uh, just understand that it will never become mine. Uh, and 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 there li- therein lies uh, what I think it's an important part of uh, of of respecting the position of victims in the whole process in which we are engaged when we work in human rights. Thanks for that. Um, just as we wrap up, uh, I wanted to ask you one final question. Do you have any 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 final words? Any advice for? LGBTQ people out there listening to you today in terms of uh, mental health and well-being and, you know, respecting other people's pain? Anthony, I would just uh, like to share, um, I think that there is an extraordinary um, nobility, if I can use that word. Uh, The work that we do in human rights is noble. It is it is special. It gives us a lot. It demands a lot. And I think that understanding those two dimensions is particularly important. I would like to uh, promote that human rights workers and human rights defenders, people coming into this field, understand, however, that it it is not by and in itself, um, it does not make you a better person in and of itself just because you work in human rights, just like it doesn't make you a worse person because you work in in any other field in life. What is important is that we come to this field with a notion of what is it that we can add in terms of value. and. Sometimes that can be a very technical uh, approach. Sometimes it can be about simply supporting people. Sometimes it can be about listening to people. For all of those dimensions, it is important that you, that one, retain a capacity and a clarity of mind, and that only comes through sustained self-care and self-respect. So respecting others in very many ways depends on respecting oneself. And that would be my message. It is a means just like it is an end. And I would hope that uh, this is something that we can embrace as actively as possible within our communities of human rights defenders. Thank you. Thank you very much, Victor, for taking your time to talk to me on mental health and even talking about some very personal uh, experiences that you've been through. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Of course, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Take good care and stay safe. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with uh, Victor Madrigal Borlos, who is the independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity at the United Nations. 
who has given us quite a lot of insight on on how to deal with uh, uh, on how to deal with accepting oneself and how to deal with accepting the fact that as human rights workers we do tend to we do tend to take in quite a lot of the trauma that people are facing so we have been told that it actually is a thing that happens and is a thing that we should take note of uh, next week I will be joined by Kevin Mwachiro who will tell us a little bit about his life living in Kenya and um, fighting and beating cancer. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, like and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Spotify. And if you have any questions, do leave a comment and we will take it from there. Thank you so much.